from the spring blooming Univest studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA, it is time for another illuminating episode of properly pruned chemical-free horticultural hijinks you bet your garden. I'm your host, Mike McGrath. Put down those pruners and step away from those spring bulbs. On today's show, we'll explain why a nice clean garden may rob you of future flowers. Plus, the King Sessing Morris men explain how to properly welcome the month of May. And your fabulous phone call questions, comments, tips, tricks, suggestions, and decidedly dedicated denunciations. So stay right where you are, cats and kittens, because it's all coming up faster than your next run of tulips. Right after this. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we're doing two different shows this week, Cats and Kittens. On this podcast or your radio station, you will hear a full hour of our normal show. However, we do have a dance troupe on the show. So if you want to see these crazy characters, we urge you to go to our website, YouBetYourGarden.org, and click on the video for this show. You will not be disappointed. Okay? I am surrounded by my homies who are the King Sessing Morris men. Um, And they are here to help us celebrate the 1st of May. So traditionally, this has been going on for 1,400 years. It is meant to awaken the earth. (laughs) My earth is awakened already. I'm just hoping this will be good luck for the tomatoes. But uh, they're an exceptional group. They're preserving a a fabulous uh, pageantry, a legacy of awakening the earth and just making, well, you can't make fools out of yourself because we only have one fool. We'll explain that later. Um, Jan Alter, um, you have been chosen <laughs> to, to speak. Uh, uh, tell us how you guys got together. Well, the uh, originally the first uh, fellow who began the Morris dancing in Philadelphia came from Boston, and he moved down to go, to go to school here. He decided he wanted to continue doing Morris dancing as they did in Boston, so he put, brought people together. And eventually, in 1977, they got a bunch of dancers, and he started teaching the Morris dancing to them. 
and uh, I am, <laughs> I am, <laughs> oh, bozo. Um, I am correct in that the ritual is to awaken the earth. Well, originally it was done by farmers, and the idea was to chase away the evil spirits of winter and to beckon the sun to come down and to help grow the seeds and to have bounty, bounteous, um, of bounteous amounts of food for everyone to eat. So the idea was to dance, wake the ground, bring the rays of sun down, and to get everybody in the mood for the idea of growing season again. Which is why you guys are here. This is a, a ancient agricultural tradition. I know Mars dancing goes back to around 1400. It was actually thought that the uh, English brought it back from the Crusades. Uh, the Portuguese had something very similar. They used um, swords in their dancing. Oh, they also and they exciting. and they wore bells. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to find out that in um, American uh, history, Indians also wore bells and did similar dances, but. The, uh, the Morris dancing started to take hold in the rural areas of England, and various teams sprouted up in the different hamlets, and each team developed their own tradition and style of dancing. But it became, uh, th it was thought that on May 1st, you would not have any more frosts. So that was the right time to signal it's time to plant. Very good. All right, and um, we'll get to you, fool. <laughs> All right, and the first dance you're going to perform for us is Old Molly Oxford. That's is right. that correct? And um, I'll be back to uh, speak to you individually after you entertain us, and if plants start shooting out of the ground, nobody panic. It's all right. All right. Are you in your spot? Yeah, you should be in Where am I? You should be in How
right, well, let's find out who these good people are and what they do in real life. Uh, Jan, you have the biggest hat, so uh, <laughs> we'll start with you. And you're a retired school teacher. I am. I um, was a school teacher in Philadelphia teaching elementary ed for 38 years and uh, retired about eight years ago. And uh, I got into Morris dancing one day when I was at Pastorius Park in Chestnut Hill and I heard bells. Really? <laughs> and I went over and for some strange reason I, was, I gravitated towards the dancing immediately. And it was uh, so exciting. I wanted to find out the history and I certainly wanted to join the team and found out that Morris dancing is all about uh, the springtime, growing season. The idea goes back to the Druids before Christianity and the hankies were to beckon the sun to come down, shine their rays, grow the seeds. The sticks and the clashing were to chase away the evil spirits and, <clears throat> and the dancing to get everybody enthusiastic about growing, growing and planting all over again. I can imagine that since people figured out um, the way the seasons went by, that the emergence of flowers and food crops and the lack of frost, this may go back further than anybody realizes. It, it, it does. The English, which this is, which Morris dancing is from, uh, after the Crusades brought back this kind of dancing to England and started um, building these Morris teams. And it's thought that the Portuguese also had this kind of dancing, war bells. They used uh, swords and sabers. Um, Much more exciting. <laughs> I don't know how long each dance would last and how many dancers were left at the end. But um, the idea was to uh, reawaken a lot of dan a lot of the Morris dancers wear whites to the with the idea of newness and uh, that's the the intention is to bring joy and the feeling of starting over excellent excellent thank you so much all right now Hello. you sir i am bill quern and bill in real life I am uh, the warehouse manager for Weaver's Wave Food Co-op. Oh, a fabulous place. Yep. Uh, it's been around forever. Yeah, about as long as the team has been. In Philadelphia. <laughs> um, a great place for organic food. Yeah. And um, did you have a secret origin where you fell in with Morris dancers? Well, a lot of the, a lot of the dance guys here, um, we all uh, have interest in other kinds of dance. And, Contra dancing and square dancing is what we did earlier. Um, and uh, that's uh, how I discovered it. And when I moved to Philadelphia from Boston, uh, I saw the team and I said, I got to do that. So, All right. Yeah. Well, we're glad you do do it. And we're glad you're here. Next up. Al Crawford. Uh, I'm a retired public health professor at uh, Thomas Jefferson University. Okay, and uh, you came upon these clowns and druids uh, in which way? Uh, the same way Bill was just describing. I did um, 
square dancing and then contra dancing, and this was the next logical step. Okay, very good. Thank you for being here. Step right up. Hey, hi, Simon Healy. Uh, I currently work as a government documents and collection support librarian at the Free Library of Philadelphia. But you're not from Philadelphia. I've been trying to get rid of this accent for 35 <laughs> years now. Uh, I grew up, my uncle has been dancing in his Morris team the whole of my life. And I was about a year away from joining his team when my parents brought us over to America for a three-year adventure. We just celebrated our 35th year of being here in America. Mm -hmm. So wherever I've been in America so far, I've always looked for a Morris team to join. And for the last almost 20 years, I've been dancing with King Sessing. The King Sessing Morris men, which we said at the front. And do you think there's a bigger, larger number of participants, groups in the Philadelphia area because of our heritage? Uh, there's... Based on how many teams are down the East Coast, it's about the same as the other big uh, cities of New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. That's where most of the teams are located on the East Coast. Well, we're glad to have your team here. All right. Ed Stivender. I'm a storyteller, and I'll be at the Barnes Arboretum Storytelling Festival on May 5th and 6th. I first saw Morris dancing in Hartford, Connecticut in 1975 when the Westerly Rhode Island team got out of a bus. I saw the Morris and I said, oh, that's something that I have to do. I joined up with the King Sessing Morris men in the early 1990s and have been dancing with them ever since. Very good, thank you for being here too. Um, no fool, <laughs> we wanna talk to the musician. You guys are almost like tarot cards. You could, you know, could have your own image. I think the fool is on that. Yeah. Okay, so um, what did you do in real life? Uh, my wife and I had a sign and graphics business, and I'm retired now. Okay. So. And when you appear, uh, I should explain to people that we have five dancers, one musician, and one fool, uh, two if you count me, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not doing no dancing. Um, are you always the musician? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and Bill plays also. Um, but uh, yeah, I was, that's how I got on the team because uh, when the team was one year old, they lost their uh, musician. And uh, I was, I knew two of the guys on the team who played old time music with them and they want to know if I'd be interested in coming and playing for them, so I've been doing it ever since. Excellent. Well, thank you for doing that. It really adds a lot. Well, that takes care of everybody out here, I would say. All right, fool. Explain yourself. Hello. Uh, in my real life, I'm a Morris dancer, and, uh, <laughs> and everything else is just kind of pretend. Okay. Um, I... And in that pretend life, I'm uh, an illustrator, uh, children's books, textbooks, readers, um, semi-retired, but I am still working on a book now. So, Very good. Go. And are you always the fool? <laughs> um, unfortunately, yes. I mean, including when I'm not Morris dancing. Oh, my nose. Oh, uh, dear. Well, it just has to stay on yeah, on right. May 1st. Yes. That's right, exactly. So, yes. super glue. 
and I, I, I sometimes dance too. And uh, but yeah, I'm, I, I seem to have found my part as the fool. Basically. Now, the purpose of the fool. Uh, there's a purpose. <laughs> oh, I think so. Oh, I, 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 historically, I think that some have said it represents the devil who tries to mess up the Morris dancers, and always fails to mess them up. They they get to do. <laughs> They uh, they continue their dance uh, and uh, the fool is unsuccess the devil is unsuccessful. I seem to remember when we've had you guys on in the past that you beat these fellows pretty savagely one year. Yeah, sure. Oh dear. All right. Um, now we have another number coming up. And it's Twiglet. And who wants to tell me a little bit about Twiglet? Sure. Uh, Twiglet, there's um, most of these dances come from the middle of uh, England, in the Cotswold Hills, England. Uh, those are uh, mostly done in all white. Um, same getup. Um, there are um, dances that are on the Welsh border, and they're called border dances. And this dance called Twiglet is in that tradition. And we'll dance with sticks. Um, but it's in the same uh, genre of Morris dancing. Okay, very good. Why don't you guys grab your sticks and I will announce where humans can come see you for real. Uh, so the King Sessing Morris men will appear on the 30th, the day before May Day, at Bryn Mawr, um, which has a huge May Day celebration and they'll be there starting at 9 a.m., and there will be many celebrations of May Day, including, I'm told, an enormous number of Maypoles. So that's a good time. But the big day, the thing you're waiting for, on May 1st itself, Belmont Plateau, which people of my age have a very fond memories of, they're going to be there at dawn, um, 6 a.m. I'll lie to them and say I'm going to be there too, and then say my head broke and I didn't know um, what day it was. But Bryn Mawr at 9 a.m. on the 30th, May 1st at Belmont Plateau at 6 a.m. or thereabouts, and then off to Rittenhouse Square, which should be quite quite the sight, um, around 11. That's a little sketchy because they got to get from Belmont to Rittenhouse Square and everything like that. And you can learn more about them um, by searching King Sessing Morris men. Maybe you could be the next member. All right, and I will get out of your way now, and we will enjoy your rendition of Twiglet. <laughs> Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the King Sessing Morris men. I want to remind you, you can see this tomfoolery live at Bryn Mawr College on Sunday, the 30th, otherwise known as tomorrow, um, at 9 a.m. And there will be a May Day celebration all day long at the college. But the big day, the big game, is the actual May Day, May 1st, when they will awaken the soil of Belmont Plateau. And if you don't know where that is, kids, just ask your parents. Um, at 6 a.m. on May Day, at dawn, as the sun rises, so will the wheat and the corn. And then, the final appearance of the day will be in Rittenhouse Square. I can't even imagine. You know, with Rittenhouse Square, with the people who hang out there to begin with, you might not be noticed. Uh, that could be a problem. Uh, but once again, give it up for the King Sessing Morris men. Well, it's time for me to take a little break and inform all of yous that our special audio-only segment in the news is coming up. This time out, we present a somewhat sensational story about the magical flowering cherry trees that delight visitors to the National Mall every spring. That's coming up soon on You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Support for You Bet Your Garden is provided by the Espoma Company, offering a complete selection of natural organic plant foods and potting soils. More information about Espoma and the Espoma Natural Gardening Community can be found at ESPOMA.com. Welcome back to another thrilling episode of You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. I am your host, Mike McGrath. Coming up later in the show, I hope you have not yet made some terrible uh, but common mistakes when it comes to your spring blooming bulbs, shrubs, trees, and anything else you got out there. So stay tuned for that, and if you already messed up, maybe you'll remember not to do it next year. 
In the meantime, more of your fabulous phone calls at 888-492-9444. Britta, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Hi, how are you? I am just ducky. Thank you for asking. Britt, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. And where is Britta doing very well? Um, Lincoln Park, Michigan, just south of Detroit. Oh, um, I know Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park and, and oh. Red Oak are beautiful areas um, near Detroit, right? I mean, you live in yeah. a in a, a horticultural paradise. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's an it's a lovely area. Okay, so what can we do for uh, Britain Lincoln Park? So my question is about compost piles and specifically rodents in compost piles. So my particular town has had a few years of a rat problem ever since some sewer work was done oh, a number yeah. of years ago. Yeah, and that always now, chases them up. Oh, yes. Yes. Now, my particular yard, we have a rat hunting husky who has done a wonderful job <laughs> in in getting rid of um, our immediate problem. Mm-hmm. My worry is that this year I, I really wanted to start a compost pile in the fall, mm-hmm. and I've been reading through your compost book. But my one concern is now that we finally kind of have the issue a little bit under control, mm-hmm. will something like a compost pile become a warm and inviting location for rats or other rodents? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the warm comment. Um, yes, that was Now, as opposed to when I got started in this business, there are many ways uh, – to utilize your kitchen scraps uh, that don't involve outdoor composting. And any compost pile that has kitchen scraps in it um, has the potential to attract rats and raccoons and creatures Mm -hmm. like that, which is why I generally advocate, especially when people are starting out, uh, to just make your compost pile shredded leaves and spent coffee grounds. Because they're, you know, rats are not coffee drinkers, to the best of my knowledge. (laughs) And it makes fabulous compost. And um, there's no harm. So there's (laughs) nothing in the pile to attract them. But you're up north. And it does get very cold in the winter where you live. And the, the heat of a compost pile may well attract them. So I'm presuming you're going to use one of these recycled black uh, compost units that has a locking lid and everything like that. Well, initially I wasn't going to um, because they tend to be a little expensive. Um, But if I, I was concerned enough about the rodents being a potential issue that it looks like that might be the avenue I have to go. It looks really good. I have every type of compost pile. I've got open piles. I've got uh, several of the rectangular black plastic ones. And I also got the big bellied round uh, recycled plastic ones. So 
what I'm thinking, if cost is a concern, I would suggest okay. you get in touch with your local extension service and see if anywhere near you is going to have a workshop on composting where you can get a composter um, for a greatly reduced fee, sometimes even for free if there's a program going on. Oh. But again, wow, okay. um, if you're not going to be putting in food scraps, you can have an open, you know, just a, a cage, a wire cage that you put your shredded leaves and coffee grounds into. And the leaves must be shredded, but you got tons of leaves up there. Oh, that's, yeah. And starting in the fall is the best time because that's when all the the leaves are coming down and uh, makes it very easy to start composting. What I would say then is you always want ground contact so that earthworms can come and go up and down in the pile. Uh, but there's no reason you couldn't lay chicken wire underneath before you get started, maybe two layers of oh. it, and then bring it up around the sides so that it goes up about a foot. Now, rats can climb. Okay. Um, you yeah. know, eventually <laughs> nothing will stop them. But if you do that and you have, uh, they have these really cool electric traps now that you just put like four AA batteries in and it's got a green light and a red light. And if a rat or a mouse goes inside, the light changes to the other color. And then there's just a switch where you can open the door and dump it without looking at it and then reset it again. And that way you're not introducing any poisons to the environment. And it would also be kind of a monitoring device to let you know if there is a potential problem. Okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. I was worried about uh, the traps that use poison. Uh, those make me really uncomfortable. Oh, they should. Especially with kids and dogs. Oh, yeah. You're, yeah your husky would be a great risk. I mean, let's say, yeah, oh, yes. let's say the rat gets poisoned, uh, stumbles out of the trap, and the husky eats it. You could lose that fabulous dog. Oh, yeah. Because they're very yeah. sensitive to these poisons, huskies. Yeah. Yeah, that would be a big concern for me. But if there's ones that do it without poison, no that would No chemicals be great. whatsoever, yeah. Okay. Okay. I think it's called the rat zapper. <laughs> <laughs> rat zapper. All right. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate your help. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for calling, and uh, have a good season. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. We are in our segment for our audio-only listeners in the news. Now, this week's In the News is very springtimey, and it is an article uh, from, by Jessica Diamano, who writes for the Associated Press, and I, I think it's a column because I see her, uh, her name all, all the time. And matter of fact, here, uh, writes for the AP and publishes the award-winning weekly Dirt 
newsletter. Oh, I love when people say dirt. We all know how beautiful uh, the cherry blossoms are at the National Mall every spring, and it's it's fun to guess when the peak peak bloom is going to occur. Um, you know, we're kind of past it now, but in the 1920s, Jessica writes that the average uh, date was April 5th, and that has moved up to March 31st in recent years, and the 2023 peak arrived a week earlier than that this season. So there's your climate change, huh? And the keepers of the trees think that this is just going to get worse or, you know, better. Maybe peak bloom January 30th. No, hope that doesn't happen. Anyway, here's what interested me about these trees. Um, first, uh, there are um, Japan, as as many people know, uh, donated the trees, the original trees, to the United States in 1912. And that was a gift of a little over 3,000 of the trees. Now, two of these trees were planted by First Lady Helen Taft and Viscontis Chinda, wife of the Japanese ambassador to the United States. That small gathering became the origin of the current festival of Cherry Blossom Blooms, uh, which is an annual event. But see, here's the interesting part. The average lifespan of a Japanese cherry tree is roughly between 30 and 40 years, depending on the variety and conditions. But the two trees that were planted by those dignitaries that day are still standing at 111 years later. Matthew Morrison, the Park Service's urban forester who is charged with caring for the trees, says, quote, that defies science. <laughs> he attributes the anomaly to, quote, a little bit of magic tied to this wonderful gift. Um, and it is indeed magical. Obviously, they've kept track of these trees because of who planted them. And, you know, it was the first cherry blossom festival that had like 30 people attending. Um, but now you now I want to go. I want to go to D.C. next spring and I want to see these two trees, especially. I mean, they're celebrate trees, right? Uh, National Cherry Blossom Festival spans five weekends and includes a roster of events throughout Washington and its suburbs. Um, and if you can't make it there, you can, quote, peep the trees live via the Trust for the National Mall's Bloom Cam. So I, I don't know, maybe I'll see you in D.C. next spring, but that's a remarkable story. I think there is magic in those two trees.
Well, it's time for me to take a little break and remind everybody who is anxious to get their plants of summer in the ground that you can't be lured by warm, sunny days because those warm, sunny days are often quickly turned into dark, frigid nights. Tropical plants like peppers and tomatoes should not be planted outdoors until nights are reliably in the 50s. I'm unfortunately way past my 50s, Mike McGrath, and you're listening to You Bet Your Garden from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. This is 91.3 FM, WLVR Bethlehem, WLVR.org. Welcome back to You Bet Your Garden. From the studios of Univest at the Lehigh Valley Public Media Center in Bethlehem, PA, I am your host, Mike McGrath, and we are in the stretch now, cats and kittens, in just a little bit. We'll tell you the deep, dark secret about getting your spring bloomers to bloom reliably again next year. Hopefully you haven't ruined your chances yet, but if you have, we're doing our best, okay? All right. Up until then, phone calls, 888-492-9444. Eric, welcome to You Bet Your Garden. Well, thank you. Well, thank you, Eric. How you doing? I'm fine. Calling from State College, Pennsylvania. Oh, I think everybody in that area listens to this show. Uh, it's very gratifying. Great to hear from you. What can we do you for? Well, a couple of weeks ago, you had a segment on raising tomatoes and about putting eggshells in the tomato hole. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I remembered that I hadn't saved any eggshells this fall. Or spring. How dare you? Yes, that's what I thought, too. I blame it all on my wife. You know how that goes. Uh-huh. And well, she, uh, Eric, I can tell you right now, she's right. Okay? Just, yes, yeah. she is. She yeah. knows that, too. Yeah. But anyhow, I had to buy some bone meal for some other plant. And thinking about bone meal, which is mostly calcium, uh, according to the paperwork, it says it's... Oops, I lost it already. Bone meal is... It's NPK is 315.0, and the calcium is 12%. That's a, now, that's if, a good I number. That, that's a good number. Can I throw that in the tomato hole? Uh, yes. Uh, bone meal is a byproduct of uh, slaughterhouses and rendering plants. Um, after the rest of the cow has been used, they take the bones and they sterilize them. They cook them pretty, uh, pretty hot, and then grind them into a powder, um, which almost always goes to horticultural use. <laughs> but back in the day, it used to be used to make uh, bone meal supplements for people to try and get their calcium. So I like that 15. Is it just bone meal? Uh, that's what the container said. Bone huh. meal with, as I said, three fifteen zero. 
Well, the 15 in the middle, uh, the phosphorus is, um, is excellent. That should produce lots of flowers. And again, since you failed to save your eggshells, I would put, let me, let me think, how, how big a bag did you get? Uh, five pound. And how many tomatoes you going to grow? Uh, six to ten. And how much of the bag is left? Oh, most of it. Oh, okay. Um, so I can't decide in my head uh, whether to recommend a half a cup or a whole cup of bone meal into the planting okay. hole. So let's split the difference and make it three quarters of a cup. And that sounds like a reasonable explanation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Okay. I I was told there would be no math today. So. Um, oh, I'm sorry. We. <laughs> um, so just to repeat for those who didn't um, catch it, uh, tomatoes should always be planted deeply in a deep hole. Uh, you don't need to have a lot of greenery showing up top, uh, but the more of the stem that's buried underground, um, that stem will grow auxiliary roots that will reach out um, to greater numbers of nutrients and be able to absorb more water. So you plop the plant into the ground with the roots right down at the bottom, you add your calcium amendment, whether it's bone meal or um, eggshells, and then you've, very important to fill in the hole with the same soil. You don't want to amend the soil in the hole because you want those roots to grow out into the surrounding soil and not be safe and nuzzled in that little protected area. And then put some compost on top of the soil then every time it rains, your tomatoes will be fed compost tea. But yeah, um, I like I like the numbers you ran out. And give us a call at the end of the season and, and tell us how your tomatoes did. One thing, we always stress that having adequate soil calcium will prevent uh, blossom end rot in tomatoes. Uh, but one thing I often fail to remind myself of is that it produces better tasting tomatoes. Calcium is essential in getting a fully developed taste from your love apples. Excellent. All right, man. Thank you so much. Oh, my take, pleasure. Take care of yourself. You too, sir. Goodbye. As always, it is time for the question of the week, and it's a timely one, I hope. We're calling it the top tips for spring bloom success next year. Now, just the other day, I was walking by some hospital grounds and saw a huge display of bright, glossy green daffodil leaves with just one lonely little daffodil flowering off to the side. I didn't need the classic Sherlock Holmes hand lens to deduce the destroyer of this display. It was premature removal of the green leaves the season before. The month following the fade of the flowers is the most crucial time in the life of daffodils, tulips, and other spring bulbs. 
leave the leaves and you allow the underground plant parts to use those leaves as solar collectors to power the growth of the following year's flowers. Ah, but if you cut off those green leaves to, quote, clean up the garden, you prevent those potential flowers from ever being born. Clean your laundry, not your landscape. Do you like that? I wrote that. Note, it is acceptable to deadhead the actual flowers after they stop looking good. In fact, it is beneficial. Pinching off the faded flowers makes the garden look much neater and removes any seed heads that might sap energy from the forthcoming plant to be. Note, note, in some cases, you'll just be pinching off a faded flower but some stems will have a bulbous, round-to-football-shaped bulge just beneath that former flower. These baby bulbs should be removed as well, but you can then try your hand at breeding them, pick an out-of-the-way area for your nursery bed, and have it ready by the fall. Then plant the tiny treasures you have stored indoors, in that bed around Halloween. If you're lucky, greenery will emerge in the spring. Let those leaves grow, apply some compost to the bed, and allow that greenery to naturally turn brown. Then do nothing, especially over watering the bed. Try not to water it at all. These plants receive very little water over the summer in their once native climb. The following year, significantly larger leaves should appear in the spring as the underground bulbs increase in size. From now on, leave the flowers in the ground. And after one or two more seasons, you should see flowers. But let's cut back to the top. Resist the temptation to remove the green leaves of spring bulbs prematurely and a fully formed flower will grow in the center of the underground bulb, just waiting to pop out for you next spring. Teachers, this is a really fun show and tell project. Obtain a quantity of daffodil bulbs right around the time the kids are being rounded up kicking and screaming to return for another exciting semester of school and have a bulb ready for every student and one for yourself you won't be planting yours. Instead, you will produce a sharp knife and a cutting board. Cut the bulb down the center lengthwise and show the kiddos that fully formed flower inside. Then explain that September through November, earlier in cold climates, later in warmer ones, is the perfect time to plant the rest of these new bulbs, which will bloom before school lets out for the following summer. Note, you don't have to wait forever to snip off the dying leaves in summer. You can carefully remove them as soon as they begin to fade and lose their lush green color. You don't have to wait until they become a fire hazard as off-color leaves aren't performing that amazing task of photosynthesis. Feeding. Feed your bulbs as soon as those new green leaves appear in the spring. 
because this is when they will be actively growing next year's flowers underground. Tossing bulb food in the planting hole when newly purchased bulbs get planted in the fall has always been a mystery to me, as that bulb is done growing its new flower and will now go dormant, and you should never feed a dormant plant. Plus, the scent of the food could attract mice, moles, shrews, and other bad actors during the winter months of slim pickings for those varmints. Note, 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 note. If you wish to do any of this as a school or educational project, stick with daffodils, as they are toxic to vermin like mice, voles, and evil squirrels. They aren't harmful to us, but pests avoid them, unlike tulip bulbs, which are nutritious and delicious. We move on to spring-blooming trees and shrubs. Similar to spring bulbs, plants like azaleas, rhododendron, flowering crab apples, forsythia, and cherry blossoms start preparing for the following spring show shortly after their flowers fade in late spring. That's the time these plants can best utilize a gentle feeding of compost to encourage good bud formation for flowering next year. This is also my favorite time of year to prune out dead, diseased, and crowded limbs because you can see what you're doing. Note that I did not include spring-blooming caliper pears, like Bradford pears and Cleveland pears in that list. They are structurally weak trees and fall apart in heavy storms. The flowers stink like rotten meat and they have become highly invasive since they developed the ability to produce little pollinated fruits, which we were assured could never happen. Can we cue Jeff Goldblum? Nature finds a way. New plant buyers, please don't be tempted by their low price. They're cheap because they're cheap. Get a nice tree instead. And if you feel that any of your spring-blooming trees and or shrubs need pruning, do it as soon as possible after the flowers fade. Repeat after me. Prune nothing in the late summer or fall. That's nothing. Not a buck kiss. You get it? Just watch the World Series instead. Well, that sure was some hopefully helpful information about how to ensure the best spring blooms next season, now, wasn't it? Luckily for you, the question of the week appears in print at the Gardens Alive website. To read it over at your leisure or your leisure, just click the link for the question of the week at our website, which is still and will forever be youbetyourgarden.org. Gardens Alive supports the You Bet Your Garden Question of the Week, and you will always find the latest question of the week at the Gardens Alive website. Yikes, my producer is threatening to damage my daffodils if I don't get out of this studio. We must be out of time. But you can call us anytime at 888-492-9444. 
or send us your email. You're tired, you're poor, you're wretched refuse teeming towards our garden shore at YBYG at WLVT.org. We will sign you up for Spam Unlimited if you do not include your location. I've got to get tough with you guys now. You Bet Your Garden is a half-hour public television show available for viewing on PBS 39, PBS Passport, and our website. It is also an hour-long public radio show and podcast, and it's all produced and delivered to you weekly from the Univest Studios at Lehigh Valley Public Media in Bethlehem, PA. Our radio show is distributed by PRX, the public radio exchange. You Bet Your Garden was created by Mike McGrath. Mike McGrath was created when he ignored the sage advice about not using a fork to get a piece of stuck rye bread out of the toaster. Ken Queter is our musical director. Our chief content officer is Joni Greenbaum. Our angel of the airways is Christine Dempsey. Our sound engineer and set decorator is cheerful Charlie Sarah. Our social media director is Amanda Norfleet. Check out her fine work at the You Bet Your Garden Facebook page. Teresa Radke is our peerless princess of profound production. Our audio editor is the always lovely Jonas Bowen. And judicious Jake Boyer handles the video. Our directorial director of direction is the harassed and harried Javier Diaz. Also starring Jacob Morris, Zach the Tack, and our beloved band of card sharks, roustabouts, and fortune tellers. Our CEO is Tim Fallon. I'm your host and executive producer, Mike McGrath, and I'll be anxiously following the upcoming nighttime temps, hoping to see a roll of 50s. And I'll be doing that until I can see you again next week.